Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Andrew, if you don't know me, and I hope I have the chance, if you don't know me, to meet you very soon. Uh, last week, Kevin mentioned that we used the lectionary. And this is sort of a calendar of scripture readings that we go through in a given year. And this year is year B of the lectionary. So our focus is on the Gospel of Mark. And you probably noticed of the four Gospels that Mark is by far the shortest, the most focused of the four Gospels. We don't get the birth narratives. We don't get the genealogies of Mark. Mark goes right into the ministry of Christ. And he begins with the baptism. And as well, there's very little editorial commentary in the Gospel of Mark. Mark wants to show us what the Son of God looks like. What he does and how people respond to him in turn. And this morning, our gospel reading is another miracle story. What is the purpose of all these miracle stories that we find in the gospels? There are a lot, there's a lot, that we, a lot we can say about this. But first of all, the, God, the, the miracle stories provide evidence that Jesus is the Messiah the Christ, the anointed one of God. These miracles are signs that he is the son of God. And they fulfill prophecies as we see on the cover of our worship guide. It mentions that the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. And that's exactly what happens in our gospel passage for this morning. But as well, the, the miracle stories function like mini-dramas. Many dramas of Christ's larger work to restore all of creation. They vividly demonstrate how God reverses the effects of evil. Have any of you read Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut? Anybody familiar with that book? A few of you. It's a strange book. Uh, the main character gets abducted by aliens. And that's only the beginning of the strangeness of that novel. But in the midst of all the strangeness, there's a very beautiful passage that I'd like to read to you. Uh, the main character, if you don't know the story, is Billy Pilgrim. He's a POW during the time of the Dresden firebombings. He's actually underground in Dresden, Germany, when the city is bombed by Allied uh, forces. And he survives this terrible experience. And then, at one point in his life, in middle age, something really strange happens to him. This is around the time he gets abducted by aliens. He gets unstuck in time. He gets slightly unstuck in time. And when this happens, he sits down to watch TV, and he sees a movie backwards. And let me just read this passage to you about the movie that he sees backwards. It was a movie about American bombers in the Second World War and the gallant men who flew them. Seen backwards by Billy, the story went like this. American planes took off backwards from an airfield in England. The formation flew backwards over a German city that was in flames. The bombers opened their bomb bay doors and exerted a miraculous magnetism which shrunk the fires gathered them into steel cylinders, and lifted the containers into the bellies of the planes. And then the containers were stored neatly in racks. And when the bombers got back to the bases, these steel cylinders, 
were taken from the racks and shipped back to the United States of America, where factories were operating day and night, dismantling the cylinders and separating the dangerous contents into minerals. And touchingly, it was mainly women who did this work. And then the minerals were shipped to specialists in remote areas. And it was their business to put them into the ground and to hide them cleverly so these minerals would never hurt anybody ever again. <laughs> the American flyers turned in their uniforms and became high school kids. And Hitler turned into a baby. <laughs> this wasn't in the movie, but Billy was extrapolating. Everybody turned into a baby. And all humanity, without exception, conspired biologically to produce two perfect people, Adam and Eve. <laughs> Whatever you think about modern warfare and the necessity of the Second World War, this is a very touching passage that I think is akin to the biblical passages about beating uh, swords into plowshares. It describes a reversal. And Jesus does this when he comes to earth. He reverses the damage of sin and death. Sight is given to the blind, hearing to the deaf. But he doesn't do this by pressing rewind on the tape of time or through some kind of weird time travel. He doesn't go back in time to try to stop the deaf man from becoming deaf to begin with. He doesn't go further back in time to try to stop Adam and Eve from taking the fruit. Instead, the Eternal One, God from the beginning of time, steps into time as a human being and brings about healing one person at a time. God is resuming His plan, His rescue plan. Through Jesus, as we see in the Gospels, He is restoring His reign over the world. He confronts evil and the hold that it has on people's lives. He heals people uh, whose bodies are broken by the effects of evil in the world. But as he does this, the scars often remain. Hmm. And of course, we see in Jesus himself that he retains the scars of the crucifixion, even though he's transfigured by the resurrection. So this morning we have the story about the healing of a man who's deaf and has a speech impediment. This is another event in the life of Jesus as he inaugurates God's reign in the world. And notice in this passage, if you have a Bible, turn to Mark 7, uh, verses 31 to 37. Notice in this passage the sort of extensive physical process that Jesus goes through as he heals this man. And this is significant because, remember, Mark is the most economic of the gospel writers. Mark doesn't waste any words. There's very descriptive detail here. And this is striking given the circumstances of the previous passage where the daughter or the child of a Syrophoenician woman um, is freed of a demon remotely, sort of a long-distance exorcism. Jesus speaks the word, and we know what happens. But here, we have a lot of detail. This is also striking because the deaf man would have been considered unclean. And we looked at this passage last week. Anyone with chronic illness, disease, or any kind of impairment was considered to be a sinner in this time. 
These conditions were viewed to be a direct result of sin. Remember the case of the blind man and John. And the question of the disciples. Who sinned? His parents or him? Jesus' answer, in short, was neither. So for Jesus even to touch this man would have been an act of uncleanness. But he's fearless. And he's already addressed the purity codes in this chapter. And it's ironic, too, because he uses his own spittle. It says that he spits and then puts that on the tongue of the man. Spit was considered to be unclean by Jewish law as an unclean discharge from the body. So Jesus, ironically, uses an unclean, unclean act to heal this man. His healing, as I said, is very hands-on. It's a drawn-out process. There are at least seven actions that are described here in our passage. He takes the man aside from the crowd. He puts his fingers into the man's ears. We don't know how long he does that, how much he pokes around, but he puts his fingers into the ears. As I mentioned, he spits. He touches the man's tongue with his spittle. He looks up into heaven. He sighs. And then he says the Aramaic word, Ephrathah, be open. And the result, the man's ears are open. And he speaks plainly, clearly, correctly. And then we see as well the response to this amazing healing. And Jesus gives a rather difficult command. He tells the man who has just received back his ability to speak, don't speak. <laughs> I know that I just restore, restore that ability, but don't tell anyone. And then in the end, the overall response of the people is amazement that he, Jesus, even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. How many of you grew up with red letter Bibles? Any? Old people in the room today? In the hall, in the pavilion? Okay, quite a few of us. Okay. We're not really old, are we? Young at heart. Um, I started attending church when I was very young, so before I could read, I could see the Bible, and sometimes I would flip through it during the sermon. Wasn't paying very careful attention. I was four years old, and five years old, and I noticed right away that when you get to the New Testament, all of a sudden it's a sea of red letters, right? In Matthew 5, you have the Sermon on the Mount, just this big block of red letters. Um, and if you look at Matthew, those sort of five big blocks of red letters, the, the, the big blocks of teaching, really parallel the five books of Moses. And Matthew is portraying Christ as the new Moses. Well, we're in the Gospel of Mark, so I won't get into that. Um, I didn't realize until later, though, that the first red letter New Testament wasn't printed until 1899. It was a fairly recent uh, sort of innovation. Uh, it was the idea of a German-American journalist and fundraiser. His name was Louis Klotsch. And he really wanted the people to read the Bible, to understand it, and to connect to it. And one day he was reading the words from the Gospels. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And he had this idea, why don't we put all the words of Christ into red letters? Red letters that correspond with the color of his blood that was shed for us. And so he started doing this, and pretty, pretty soon it caught on like wildfire. And almost all the Bibles, at least in America, were, were published with the words of Jesus in red letters. And this has fallen out of favor for a number of reasons. I won't go into that this morning. Uh, for one thing, it's not always clear which words in the Gospels Jesus is speaking and which words the Gospel writers are speaking. So John 3.16 is an example of that. 
Is Christ saying that, or is John saying that? Um, maybe a bigger concern is that some people feel that having red letters sort of creates a canon within the canon, that the words of Jesus are more important than, say, the words of Paul. Um, but anyway, if we had red-letter Bibles, and some of us sort of like the nostalgia of red-letter Bibles, in our passage for this morning, there would be only one word in red. That would be the word Ephrathah, be opened. This is a powerful word. It really sticks out then in this passage. It's not a magic word. It's a command, but also a kind of prayer. And notice that Jesus looks up into heaven when he says it. And of course, when he speaks it, the man is free. He's open. But what does this word, Ephrathah, mean for us today? What does it mean for us when Jesus says, be opened? Um, I come, as some of you know, I come from the Pacific Northwest. And in the fall time, we often have very powerful windstorms. I think they're technically called extratropical cyclones. Um, they form in the mid-Pacific and kind of work their way east. And I remember when I was a kid in November 1981, we had a series of two storms, kind of back-to-back. -back. They were called the Friday the 13th storms. And uh, the first storm came on Friday, then the following one came on Sunday. Uh, the wind gusts on the coast were up to 100 miles an hour. And I lived in the woods where we had a lot of Douglas fir trees. I don't know if you've seen a Douglas fir tree before. If you've seen the Oregon license plate, there's a big old growth Douglas fir on the, on the license plate. Um, and the thing with Douglas fir is they get huge. They're great for timber, but they also have very shallow roots because the Pacific Northwest tends to be rather damp. And so it had been raining quite a bit. These storms came in and the trees were just toppling over. Um, my family, we lost our, our, our power and phone connection for a week. And I remember that very clearly because I had to walk down to the creek to get water for the toilet and for boiling. We fortunately had a wood stove. Um, and uh, it, it just felt like we were cut off from the rest of the world for that time. It was really a strange experience and very memorable. Uh, the only real connection we had to the outside world was a battery-operated radio. You guys remember those? Yeah. Um, so when the power company finally showed up and the phone company around the same time and repaired the lines, it felt like salvation. And along these lines, the power line and the phone line, when Jesus opens eyes and ears, which are created for communication, God gave us eyes and ears and lips and tongues so we can communicate with each other and commune with him and receive from him as well. When Jesus repairs these broken things, he's repairing our relationship with God. We need Christ to open our ears. And the Bible is replete, full of hearing imagery, the proliferation of hear and listen throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. We see it in Jesus' phrase, he who has ears to hear. And keep in mind that the societies of the ancient world were primarily oral societies. Uh, we receive much of our information visually, right? We read things on our phones, in a book, through text and image. But in, in the ancient world, most things were communicated by word of mouth, by the spoken word. Most people were not literate. Written copies of texts like scrolls were very expensive. So most people literally received 
information and truth by word of mouth through the ears, through sound. So in the Bible, hearing becomes a figure, a symbol of comprehending truth and acting on it. And our reading of James reminds us of the danger of not just hearing the word. We have to be careful to do the word as well. We can hear and speak the right things, but if we fail to do them, we're in trouble. But we also need God to unfetter our hands and feet. We need to carry out what we hear. There are many voices that can drown out the voice of Jesus, many noises. Um, think of, of people who in the past worked in, uh, around loud machinery who lost their hearing over time before there was good hearing protection. And the woes of the world, the cares of this life can deafen us to the voice of Christ. Sin also creates a communication problem, a barrier between us and God. And we see this in Psalm 38 where the psalmist describes himself and the way that sin sort of affects his body. And he says in verses 13 and 14, As for me, I am like the deaf who do not hear and is one who is mute and does not open his mouth. I become like a man who hears not, and in whose mouth are no reproofs. And the psalm ends with a cry for salvation. Make haste to help me, O Lord God. So in the end, hearing is necessary for life. You see this on the cover of our worship guides. If you have those handy, take them out. We have this beautiful painting of an oasis in the desert and the act of unstopping the ears of the deaf and unmuting the tongues of the dumb is paralleled with having uh, water in a desert think of an oasis think of a very dry place and sort of the dramatic transformation that happens when water comes hmm. it's life in the desert Streams in the desert. This is a famous phrase for Isaiah. And we see later in Isaiah, in chapter 55, God calls out and says, Incline your ear, hear that your soul may live. Hearing is life. And Christ gives this to the man who comes to him. We also need Christ to open our tongues and our lips. Jesus touches the man's tongue. In our liturgy, we often use the phrase, Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. Why do we pray this? Do we wake up with our lips sealed? Why do we pray this? Well, does anybody know what psalm that passage comes from? Oh, Lord, open my lips. What psalm is that? Do you recall? It's Psalm 51. And remember that Psalm 51 is a psalm where David is repenting because of his sin with Bathsheba. He has, like many men before him and many men after him, he has abused his position of power and has committed great sin. He murders a man. He commits adultery. And in this psalm, he asks God to cleanse his heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God. He asks God to deliver him from blood guiltiness. And then he says, God, if you do this, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. He asked God to open his lips because sin has silenced them. 
sin has shut them like the grave. What is keeping you from praising God this morning? What has you tongue-tied like the man in Mark 7? Anger? Resentment? Impurity? While we ask God to open our lips that we might proclaim his praise, we must also be aware of the danger of only paying lip service to God. This is Isaiah's powerful indictment of Israel's worship. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus quotes this at the beginning of Mark 7. So this is a danger that we face in Anglican worship, isn't it? The danger that we can take some of the most beautiful words ever written in the English language and we can say them with cold lips. Hmm. Expressing ourselves in language is a gift. But our reading in James again reminds us of the danger of the gift of language, of tongues in general. Remember that phrase, another World War II connection, the phrase, loose lips, sink ships. This actually came from a propaganda campaign in World War II to help servicemen and civilians keep quiet about the war effort, lest it be spoiled by gossip and hearsay. So my question for you this morning, my question for all of us, this morning, is where would you have the Lord direct his words, Ephrathah, be open? What dark, silent places need opening in your heart this morning? What would you have him open for you? Your eyes, your ears, your lips, your heart. Maybe it's a relationship with a family member that needs to be unstopped. Maybe it's a relationship with a co-worker. There are all kinds of things that can stop, that can plug up our ability to hear God and communicate with Him and then with each other. Because the two go hand in hand, don't they? If we're not in communion with God, how can we be in communion with each other? And as John reminds us in 1 John, if we're not in communion with each other, how can we say that we're not that we are in communion with God. But, be careful what you ask for. Because as we see in the story, once God opens your lips, your ears, you'll have trouble keeping them silent. Um, perhaps the hardest commandment in all of Scripture is found in our passage for this morning. We already mentioned it. Jesus tells a healed man who is no longer deaf, who's had a speech impediment, he tells him not to tell anyone. And likely this man had never been able to speak. So how would he be able to hide it? I mean, the minute he opened his mouth, it would be clear that something radical had happened. People would ask him a question, and he would have to tell them, right? Seems like an impossible command. It's sort of uh, like a rich man buying his son a Ferrari and telling him, okay, son, I know you're excited about this gift, but A, don't drive it over 55 miles an hour, and B, don't tell any of your friends about it. What's the likelihood of either of those things happening? <laughs> There's something irrepressible about the good news. Keeping silent is like trying to hold a beach ball under the water. You have to work pretty hard to keep it there. It wants to come up. And so it should be in our own hearts. We must come to the point that the deaf man and his friends come to at the end of the passage, where they say, of Christ, 
He has done all things well. He has done all things well. Kevin pointed out that this sounds a bit like Genesis 1, doesn't it? When Jesus, uh, when, when God looks at the world after a week of creation, he sees all that he's created, and he sees that it was very good. It was well done. Like the Lutheran hymn goes, what God has done is well done. <laughs> Jesus is the creator in the second Adam, and when he comes, he comes to make all things good and all things and people well. He comes to inaugurate a new creation. He comes to release, renew, and bring new life. So let me close with a simple prayer. Lord God, open our lips, our ears, our tongues, and our hearts to you.